Well, I've appreciated the MOPS ministry throughout the years, how God has uniquely used that group of people to encourage. We have seven children. My wife said that there was a season where MOPS saved her life. And so uh, I I would just encourage you, uh, one, if you're in a place in your life where you can connect with MOPS, that's wonderful. If you're saying, hey, this this is not a season where I can connect, we want to encourage you and ask of you to be praying for MOPS, and specifically the the families of preschoolers. Uh, That ministry is huge, and we we love what God is doing there. I'm Kenny White. I get to be Shakopee Campus Pastor. Pastor Matt and I uh, get to co-pastor here at Friendship, and we sometimes go back and forth on campuses and uh, see what's going on and see how we can uh, help and encourage and As we have done that over the last few years, one of the things that came to mind was the uh, opportunity to take time to pause and really look at God's word from a different perspective. So we started this series called God Wrote a Book. Gwab, if you want to remember it that way. And so uh, Gwab started last week, and as we began to look at God writing a book, we wanted to strip things down and come to the very foundation of who we are as a people, as followers of Christ, and what it means. You noticed that even earlier with kind of a stripped-down version of our worship team this week, where we just wanted to make it simple, come before the Lord, and just worship in kind of a raw sort of way. Today, we'll have the opportunity to... Uh, recite what we believe in the Apostles' Creed a little bit later. But what we wanted to do today was take some time and really identify why we believe what we believe. This is a practice called apologetics. Apologetics is not apologizing for what we believe, but rather knowing why we believe what we believe. Rick Allen has been a longtime uh, attender here at Friendship, has served both in PL and in Shakopee, and you've probably seen him around, but maybe didn't realize the incredible gift that Rick is. He has been trained as an apologist by nationally renowned apologists. In fact, he's traveled overseas uh, sharing the faith and why we can believe what we believe. Rick has a handle on the truths of the scriptures, And it is our delight to have him today. I'm going to ask Rick Allen to please come forward. Would you give him a hand as he comes today? Good morning. So when I walked into church this morning, the first thing Kenny didn't say was, hi, how you doing? He said, you're wearing purple. Did you change teams? I did not change teams. I'm a Packer fan. It's easy crowd here. Um, born and raised in Milwaukee, so I'll always be a Packer fan. Uh, I, did, I figured there's no NFL football going on. It was safe to wear purple, but apparently not. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. I would like to invite you to travel back in time with me to the year 2003, 20 years ago. If you had asked me in 2003, I would have told you I was an atheist, that I didn't believe in God. It wasn't a strong passion or anything, I just I didn't believe in it. But that started to change, and in 2003, I started to go to church a little more regularly. Now, I brought proof, that's me in the back row. <laughs> that's my wife next to me. 
You see, I was only in church to support her because she was moving in one direction towards God and Jesus and I was moving in another. And I wasn't real happy about it. When I was in church, I usually wasn't paying attention. But if I was, I'd be thinking, it's kind of wishful thinking. It's a made-up story that grew over time. To be honest, sometimes I thought I was actually repulsed by it, just a bad feeling by it. Now, I have to admit, there were times, even as an atheist, that I went to church alone. Proof again, my wife's not there. <laughs> and you'd ask, why would an atheist go to church alone? That is a great question. I have kids, I have twins, a boy and a girl, and at this time they were two years old. And while I love them to death, they could be quite a handful. My wife is out of town for the weekend. I have sole responsibility for them. By Sunday, I needed a break. Church has free childcare. <laughs> if we fast forward, 2008, my kids, my twins are seven years old, and this was the time that I realized I had a problem. I was actually sitting in this church in the balcony, if you were here when we had a balcony, and it was during the week, a, a group called Life Action came in as a ministry. And I went, like I was going with my wife to support her, and, and I was listening, and they said something that really caught my attention. I don't remember exactly what they said, but it was around morals. That you have to teach your kids good morals. And that's when I was like, I have a problem. They're going to be teenagers soon. And if we roll the clock, we're going to go back real far back here to when I was a teenager. You're going to see pictures of me. <laughs> Mr. Anti-Authority. I used alcohol, I used drugs, and I used girls, and I have a lot of regrets. So what am I going to do? What am I going to teach them? I could use someone else's definition of right and wrong, their morals, but that would just be their opinion. And there's lots of opinions. I've been going to church now for a few years and, and hearing about this Jesus guy and, and hearing about morals, and it seems like he has a pretty good moral system. And I had to admit, well, if he was God, which I didn't believe, but if he was, then that would be an objective moral standard. But I'm a skeptic. I question everything. Almost everything. Because as it turned out, I never questioned my atheism, my worldview. I never questioned it. And that's what started me on a journey, a multi-year journey, and what I now call a skeptic's journey, to try to discover the truth. What I'd like to share with you today is some of the evidence I found about the Bible. It's a book like no other. Why is it a book like no other? What did I find during my journey? What can I share with you? We're going to look at two aspects of the Bible today. We're going to look at, is it authentic? And what I mean by that is, is the Bible that I'm reading right now a good representation of what was written by the original writers. And then we're going to look at facts. We're going to look at the Bible. Is it more fiction or nonfiction, and what can we find from that perspective? Specifically, we're going to focus on the New Testament, something I didn't know, that it was 27 books collected together, and each book can actually be treated as a history book on its own. 
we'll also focus a little bit closer on the Gospels. So, this was 2,000 years ago when this book got written. I figured this was just a telephone game. You whisper something to someone, they whisper, you know, by the time you get to the end, the story is wildly different than the beginning. Clearly, that's what happened here. Stories that grew over time. So, we have an author, the original writer. Let's just say it's Luke. And he writes his book. Then we have what are called manuscripts. They're copies. But they're called manuscripts because there's no copy machines, so they have to be handwritten. Then we have more manuscripts, manuscripts that get written. And that continues until about 1400 AD. That's when the printing press was invented. Now we can automate the copies. So we have about 1400 years of manuscripts. Except we've lost the original. And we've lost a lot of copies, early copies. They were written on fragile material, papyrus, parchment. They weren't kept care of, they were lost in fires, or they were just simply lost. So we just don't have them. There is a discipline called textual criticism. Uh, this is what I learned. This is the evidence I found. And it's part science, part art. People make their lives, lives doing this and looking at the copies to determine if they're authentic or not. And it looks at three things. The first is, how many copies do we have? The more we have, the better it's going to be. And you're going to see it says many. I'll come back to why it only says many in just a sec. The second thing that it looks at is, how large is the time gap? What's the space between when we think the originals were written and our first copy, our first manuscript? And for the Bible, it's really short. I'm just glossing over these, though, because as a skeptic, they didn't mean much to me. They were just numbers. It's really good evidence, it turns out, but, but it just didn't resonate with me. Instead, I was kind of stuck on another problem, or what I thought was a problem. Did you know that the Bible copies have differences? And lots of them, not just a little. We're talking about the differences in one book. So you take the book of Luke and all the manuscripts that were written and copied from the book of Luke, the differences across them. There is a lot of differences and it really bugged me. And this is the telephone game, right? This is Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament scholar. He does what I talked about, textual criticism. Very smart, got a lot of degrees, and he wrote a book. And the book's called Misquoting Jesus. And in this book, he says, there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That's pretty powerful. That means there's over 180,000 different differences across the copies. Turns out there is a third criteria in textual criticism, and it asks how significant are the differences. But you have to look really close here, because it's not are there differences? That's what Bart's calling out in his book, all the differences. It's how significant are the differences. That's what the discipline of textual criticism looks at. This is Bruce Metzger. Uh, pretty smart guy. A lot, of, a lot of degrees like Bart. As a matter of fact, he was Bart's professor. A lot of what Bart knows, Bruce taught him. Bart says he's like a second figure, second father figure to me. They were both Christians, 
And I say were because Bart became an atheist. Primarily over the issues of evil and suffering, but he had some issues with the Bible too. You might ask, well, why, why did you bring up, why did you bring up Bruce? Because if you dig a bit and you look in the appendix of Bart's book, you can read this. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with, the, with Professor Metzger's position, Bruce's position, that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the variants. So I give a little crime scene analogy here. Uh, I was reserve sheriff deputy with Scott County for a number of years, and I learned a lot about law. And the, the crime scene analogies, in a book I'll bring up later, really, really resonate with me. So let's, let's pretend that we have a crime scene that someone was shot, and they're on the ground and they need help. So the paramedics come rushing in and they're gonna to try to save this person on the ground. Well, the paramedics are not gonna be neat. They're gonna throw things around, they're gonna move potential evidence away, they might even move the body, throw their bandages all around. So you have a really messy scene. And the detective comes in and he's not gonna say, I can't use this because it's all messed up. He's gonna take care, he's gonna look for the artifacts that don't belong, and he's gonna find the evidence that does belong. That's the exact same thing that happens with textual criticism. Remember all those copies? They look at those thousands of copies and they can detect what does and what doesn't belong and get back to the true crime scene. As a matter of fact, only 1% of those differences I talked about affect any meaning at all. And as Bart says, none of them actually affect the core Christian doctrine. So textual criticism, three things. Thousands of copies for the Bibles, Bible, way more than other ancient texts, like Josephus, Socrates, Plato, thousands more. A very short time gap and insignificant differences. Then I had a kind of what I call an aha moment. So this is the point where, you know, and they have science has actually done studies, and your brain lights up when you have an aha moment. It's euphoric. So I had one of these. And I was thinking about this telephone game, and, and I was thinking about the miracles and these stories that I figured they had to be made up because they're miracles, right? They grew over time. Here's what I kind of had this aha moment. I said, well, what if a scribe embellished a story here or added a story or changed a story, and then a different scribe changed this manuscript and a different one changed? I don't know if you can see the problem, but when you get to the end you should have wildly different stories, just like the telephone game. But that's not what we see. The stories actually remain very consistent. Now, I've been talking about textual criticism, and I try to bring humor in a little bit to my talks, and it's really hard to do with textual criticism. <laughs> so all I could do is bring in some jokes. What did one eye say to the other? Between you and me, something smells. <laughs> now these jokes actually, they, they, they lead me into the next section. So bear with me, one more. If you see a crime at the Apple store, does it make you an eyewitness? Yeah, I know, they're, they're pretty lame. But it leads me into my next section. This is Jay Warner Wallace. He's a cold case detective. Solves some of the toughest, coldest crimes. Somewhat famous, he's been on Dateline. And like me, he was an atheist, a strong atheist. He ridiculed 
his fellow Christian officers. He ridiculed the Christians in the back of his cop car as he's taking them to jail. Like me, he was in church. His wife said, we should start going to church. So he said, okay, I'll go, just to support her. And the pastor said, Jesus is the smartest man that ever lived. And that caught his attention. So he said he went out, he bought a cheap New Testament book, and he started reading. And he thought, well, I have cold case skills, things like events are in the distant past. There's no living eyewitnesses. There's little or no forensic evidence. I can apply that here and show how Christianity is false. He ended up becoming a Christian. He wrote a book, Cold Case Christianity, which is what I talked about using law enforcement and those analogies into Christianity. And this book, during my journey, was a game changer for me. Because it opened my eyes, no pun intended, to something I hadn't seen before. And that is that the Gospels, in particular, are eyewitness testimony. And we convict in a court of law based on eyewitness testimony. Sometimes we'll convict someone to death for it. And it's no doubt that they claim to be eyewitnesses. They've seen, they've heard, they've looked, they've touched all themselves. Earlier, I was talking about the inconsistencies across one book and those copies. I want to take a little time to talk about the inconsistencies across the stories, across the authors. So John writes something one way, Luke writes it another, maybe he omits it or he adds these details. And, and that for sure, I was like, that really bugged me. That bothered me because, well, why wouldn't they tell it the same way? They're an eyewitness, right? Well, I'm going to share with you who it didn't bug, and that's Jay Warner Wallace. And this is a short video of what he saw. I never flinched for a minute on the differences I saw between accounts. That didn't bother me. I had other issues, but that wasn't one of them. And I'll tell you why, because by this time, at 35, I had been working multiple eyewitness accounts for nearly a decade. And I realized early on that no two eyewitnesses ever agree, ever. It could happen, it could happen right now. It could happen while we're uh, creating this tape. And do you know that you'll get two witnesses who'll disagree about what happened five minutes ago? This happens all the time. There's variation between the resurrection accounts, absolutely. And that gave me great confidence because it's exactly the kind of variation I would expect to see if the resurrection accounts are real eyewitness accounts. And yes, they vary exactly to the degree I would expect them to be. The other thing is they were writing to different audience. So Mark was writing to the Romans. It's an action-packed kind of book. Matthew writing to the Jews. Luke writing to the Greeks. And John's writing to the unbelievers. Of course they're going to tell their stories differently to reach the audience that they're trying to reach. So it turned out that these inconsistencies actually point to true eyewitness testimony. Summary of what I found. So we have many, many manuscripts. We have a short time gap. We have insignificant differences. And we have eyewitness testimony. And you'll notice that there's some numbers missing, and that's because couldn't go through all the evidence today. We also have disciples' writings during that time gap where we don't have the manuscripts. We have other writings we can look at. There's good evidence that the resurrection is a very early belief. Even some non-Christians believe that that story, anyways, started weeks after the movement. And 
that the, the scribes that did these manuscripts are meticulous. So the Bible appears to be very authentic. But is it a true story? Still needed to look at that. We can look at the Bible with a lens of fiction or nonfiction. Fiction books have made up people, made up places, vague details. And nonfiction works, they're going to have real places, real people, explicit details. So we can put that lens on the Bible, it's pretty easy to look at. That there's real places confirmed by archaeology. What I have up here are those things that critics said, no, nope, that can't be right. Because we don't have any other evidence of it, I think the Bible got it wrong. We're going to look at just a few of them. Uh, in Luke, in the Acts, he says, the Polytarchs. This is a title for a leader, at least that's what Luke said it was. And critics for years said there's no such title. Luke got it wrong. In 1876, they found an inscription on stone that talks about the Polytarchs using it as a term for a leader. Since then, they've found 64 more references of that term. How about Pontius Pilate? Do you know there's little to no evidence for Pontius Pilate outside of the Bible? Did he live? There was no archaeological evidence for sure until 1961, and they found a stone in Caesarea Maritima that names Pontius Pilate. Not only does it name Pontius Pilate, but it names Tiberius, who is the correct leader for when Pontius Pilate would have reigned. They also found a ring in 1968. They didn't know what it was. They couldn't decipher it until 2018. And then we have more advanced technology, and they could use better photographic technology to confirm that it actually says Pilate. So now it's uh, referred to as the Pilate ring. Finally, until 1968, there was no evidence of crucifixions. Then they found this ankle bone, and you'll see there's a big nail through it. You can see the nail is bent, which is probably why it remained there, because they didn't try to get it out. So that was the first evidence we have that crucifixions actually happened, we have archaeological evidence. But it proved something else, because it was found in an ossuary, which is a bone box. And that bone box was found in a tomb with two chambers and 12 burial niches. The reason that is significant is because it proves, without a doubt, that a crucified victim could be properly buried in a Jewish tomb. Of course, we know that's what happened with Jesus. It's actually estimated that only 20% of the Holy Land has been excavated. You can imagine what else is there, but it's all built upon. They can't excavate it. Craig Evans said in a podcast, nothing has been found that contradicts what's been reported in the Gospels. So we can check that box. We've got real places. What about real people? It names real people all over the place. But not only real people, their titles. Not only their titles, but where they're from. 
This is 15 verses from Romans that I'm not going to read. It's a lot to read. But important, 27 names are named in those verses. If I was to tell you that John went to the store, some of you may have to ask, which John are you talking about? Because John is a very common name. In first century Palestine, there were common names as well. Jesus was actually a common name, and so was Simon. Just two examples I'm going to give here where Jesus and which Jesus we're talking about is qualified. Which Simon we're talking about is qualified. So you'll see common names are qualified. It's all good evidence for real places, non-fiction. What about explicit details? This is pretty interesting, some of the things that you can find in the Bible. This is a map that got created to show where Luke and Paul went by ship from Caesarea to Rome. So how do you think they made this map? It's a pretty cool map. Well, they made it because of the explicit details that Luke writes. That's the reason they can make the map. He even accurately describes the winds and how they had to sail a certain way because of the prevailing winds. This is pretty interesting. I'm going to unpack a little story. If you're like me, sometimes you read the Bible, you might read the stories, and, oh, that's interesting, but you don't really think about it. You're just reading it. And about midnight on this, on this chip truck that they took, they suspected they were getting near land. So suspected. Why did they suspect? Kind of an interesting question. Luke wrote a little earlier that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. So it was cloudy. It was midnight. They didn't know where they were. They couldn't see the shore, most likely. Perhaps they could hear the waves crashing on the shore. That's why they suspected it. He says they took a sounding. So they put something over the side of the boat to see how deep they were. And they found 20 fathoms, which is about 120 feet. They did it again a little later, and they found it was about 90 feet. Another sign that they're getting close to shore. It's getting more shallow. So they, they, they stayed there for the night, and in the morning, they left the anchors go in the sea, and they went into shore with their boat. Kind of interesting, another archaeological find. They found four anchors. Fortunately, it ends not as good as it starts. They found four anchors in 90 feet of water at about this where they think this location is. And they were about 40 yards apart from each other. But they didn't know what they had. They melted down two of them for the, for the metals. The third one got lost. They do still have the fourth, and it has been inspected to be from the first century. It would be great if they had all four and how airtight that could be, but, but we don't have it. He goes on. More explicit details. 276. That's not a vague number. Precise timelines. Three months, three days, one day, seven days. That's what let them build this map and how long it took them. Here's another few verses I'm not going to read. There's three verses, but in those three verses... 11 nations and nine nationalities are specified. Luke and John both record medical conditions, though they didn't know it at the time. So Luke says that his sweat became like blood. 
John says that when they speared his side, blood and water came out. Both of those are kind of weird. Who have you ever seen sweating blood and water coming out of a chest? The early disciples actually struggled with these. You know, after the eyewitnesses were gone, they were later reading this like, this seems like it was made up. Maybe it's, maybe it's symbolic. Maybe it's allegory. Turns out, we know now, it's medical conditions. Hematotrosis, if you can say that, and pleural effusions. These are actual medical conditions where both of these things can happen. They didn't know that. They were just writing what they saw. Obscures things that you have to look a little bit for. It says the Passover festival was near. There was green grass. There was plenty of grass and small barley loaves. Is this fact? Is it fiction or nonfiction? Well, it turns out that Passover is a real event, so that's nonfiction. It actually occurs after the rainy season, so there's plenty of grass, plenty of green grass, and it actually occurs after the barley season, so there'd be plenty of barley loaves. So you can kind of put things together to tell if it's fiction or nonfiction. Geography. I mentioned this earlier, cities all over the place. But not only the cities, things like elevation and plateaus and hills, islands, bodies of water, rivers. And you can't fake geography. You either get it right or you don't. Government, the rules in first century Palestine. How the Romans could invoke their citizenship how they would be imprisoned at their own expense, things like that. Hard to fake that stuff. Plants, animals are correct for the region for that time frame. Even buildings, how buildings are structured, how they are inside, their customs. I mentioned Passover, but things like purity and uh, the Sabbath and other things like that. All elements of nonfiction. And by the way, if you look at the non-canonical Gospels, so I'll put this kind of a test to those, like the Gospel of Thomas and some of those, they don't even come close. As a matter of fact, most of them don't name anything besides Jerusalem. This is Sir William Ramsey. He was one of the world's foremost archaeologists when he was alive. He became an archaeologist, he says, partly to refute Luke. He thought that it was written in the 200s. It couldn't be correct. He ended up saying, Luke is a historian of the first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Luke names 95 people, 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. And William Ramsey shocked the world because he converted to Christianity. So we have real places, real people, explicit details. I concluded based on the evidence that it looks like it's a work of nonfiction. When I started my journey, I didn't start by looking at Christianity. I didn't start by looking at any religion. Why would I? I didn't believe God exists. So I went and looked at the evidence for God. That's where I started. What I ended up finding was a 
whole bunch of things in our world that need an explanation. And that explanation is either there's a God, a creator, or there's nature and materials. Those are the two options, and they have to explain the evidence. This is the evidence that I find, found and what I go through when I talk about the evidence for God. And the way I like to kind of sum it up is that the atheist worldview, the nature and materials worldview, was just inadequate to explain this stuff. Things like the DNA in our bodies and that complex code. The fact that there are machines within every cell of your body. The origin of life. The things in our world most people don't think about. How did it begin? The Big Bang, how did that happen? The laws of nature. Most people don't think about the laws of nature. But these are rules in our world that every inanimate object follows. And it can be explained by mathematics. The fine-tuning in our world. The fact that there's a supernatural. At least I believe there is. I believe there's an afterlife. I believe in near-death experiences. I believe in things like consciousness and our conscience and arty, art and beauty and music and love. Those are all things that can't be explained by materials. And the fact that something's wrong, evil and suffering. Obviously, I don't have time to unpack that here, but I think when you look at it fairly, that atheism does not explain evil and suffering, but a God can, much better. And the way I like to say it is that it's just the trail just kind of ended for God. It wasn't a big, miraculous, whoa, whatever. It just was, you know what, this worldview, this atheism worldview, it just ends. It just doesn't explain things well. I had to move on. I had to change paths. We talked about the Bible. We talked about the authentic part of it and the facts of it. You can probably imagine there is a lot more evidence, and there is, that I found that needed, just like God, that needed an explanation. All of the things that happened in this world since Jesus lived has to be explained. And what's the best explanation? Well, it's this evidence that led me that I had to make a second decision. This one's a lot tougher than the decision to believe in God or not. Because as most of you probably know, to be a Christian is a character change. It's a life change. I have to clean up things like my thoughts. I have to do the best I can in a lot of areas that it's really hard to do. It also turns out I have a difficulty making this decision because I have a fear. It's a real fear. I'm going to share it with you shortly. First, I'm going to share with you some real fears you may not know exist. Did you know there's a fear of chins? It's a real fear. Genophobia. It's not my fear. There's a fear of the color yellow. Can't believe that. This one's a good one. There is the fear of ketchup. People are actually scared of ketchup, and I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Look it up. It's a real fear. My fear is a real fear, too, but it's the fear of being wrong. And it's not just this decision. It's everything. I don't like shopping because it's going to go on sale the next day. I was wrong. Just a second guesser. So what am I going to do? How am I going to get past this? 
all dawned on me that I, I talked about law enforcement and, you know, I'm kind of a juror here. If you think about being on a jury trial, there's evidence, there's a prosecutor or there's a defense attorney, and they're both going to explain the evidence. By law, it has to be the same evidence. You have to know all the evidence, and both sides give their explanation. And you, as a juror, decide which one's more reasonable. Well, I applied that here. The first is, a reasonable doubt is a doubt based on reason and common sense. And if you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt, catch that, it's not beyond all doubt, because jurors would never find anyone guilty, there's always some doubt. Are you beyond a reasonable doubt? Then if you are, it's your duty to define, find that defendant guilty. So I had to apply that to my worldview. If I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true, then it's my duty to find Christianity true. My journey started in 2008. I needed a moral standard. In 2011, I gave in. I was baptized. I led small groups. I cleaned up my language. I cleaned up my library. cleaned up my songs. cleaned up my thoughts the best I could. But that fear gripped me again. Now, I, this was a bit secretively. I didn't really you know, tell anyone about this necessarily. But in 2015, around there, I was just like, I don't want to be wrong. Did I really look at everything? Did I hear all the positions? So I dug back in. I kept rereading. I listened to debates. I listened to podcasts. And you get to that point where I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard it. I've heard everything. There's nothing new here. So I kind of finished where I started from this little part of my journey, which is, you know, I'm still a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian. The evidence hasn't changed. The best explanation is that Christianity is true. So I never would have guessed... Uh, Back in 2008, when I did my first talk, I went to Czech Republic and did my first talk, um, that I'd be on stage defending Christianity. Never in a million years would I have guessed that. But it is my ministry now. Uh, most of my offers to speak are from word of mouth, are from referrals. I bring that up in my home church. If you know of anyone that needs speaking, that would be interested in this, any organizations, please refer me. You can send them to my website. There are copies out back you could pick up um, and hand out. Let me, uh, let me finish in quick prayer. Jesus, thank you for the gifts that you've given me and my ability to do this. Thank you for the audience. I hope that um, you've given me at least one thing for every person in this audience on their journey wherever they are to continue to advance towards you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you.